0: Thanks, Trish. You didn't know this, but I'm actually talking about the Spirit of Revelation today, so that was quite the, the uh, prayer. Uh, and you can see that on the title here. Talking about, uh, for those of you who are new here, we're in the middle of the series on the Holy Spirit, and uh, we're really going deep in, in some of the basic foundational stuff. And so we've been talking about the Spirit's role in salvation, the Spirit's role in conversion. And so today, as you can see, we're going to be talking about the Spirit's role in faith and revelation. Okay, and so i like to start off just by giving you sort of my urgency, the reason why we're spending so much time on the Holy Spirit, um, is in, in my, in my uh, opinion, and I want to make sure I emphasize that this is my opinion, Uh, so it might not be true, uh, but I think it's true, of course, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it, is that Christian theology in general has neglected the central and crucial role that the Spirit played in the life and theology of the early church and of the New Testament writers. Now, I want to be clear when I say this. I'm not implicating any particular church denomination, any particular church. Uh, In fact, I'm implicating myself in this, okay? So uh, I don't want to, far be it from me that I come across as judgmental in that sense. My, my heart is that when I look at the Bible, when I look at the book of Acts, when I look at the epistles, and you compare uh, what they seemingly operated in, and you compare that to contemporary times, that there is a discrepancy, I believe, and, and that's what I'm talking about. And I think one of the main things that distances us from the early church is their awareness and experience of the Spirit. But not only that, it's their, under- their theological understanding of how important the Spirit was in their theology, in their understanding of things in the New Covenant. And um, I hope that through these messages, you'll see how important the Holy Spirit is and that he actually lies at the heart of everything in the New Testament, uh, theology and the ex- our experience of God. So Christ is always the center but the Holy Spirit is right next to Christ, is the center in our faith. And so for the past, I don't know how many weeks, since April, I've um, been kind of going deep in these, uh, uh, in terms of the center of New Testament theology, the different things that make up the center of New Testament theology. And so I started off this series talking about the Spirit is the key of the eschatological framework, which is essentially the essential framework of the entire New Testament. And if you're interested, you can check those messages out. But then we moved on a few weeks ago on the spirit is the key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ, which is arguably the central issue in the New Testament. So we've been spending some weeks on that. And then the last one here, the spirit is the key to what it means for us to become the people of God, which is the central goal is for God to create a people for his name. Now, uh, we talked about the temple of the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago, so we kind of touched on the third one. Uh, We haven't really gotten there fully yet, but today you'll see that I'm going to be uh, uh, touching on that a little bit. But, of course, we're still talking about salvation in Christ. Okay, so a few weeks ago, I talked about how New Testament writers like Paul the Apostle were Trinitarian at the core of their experience in theology. Um, And I gave a whole message on this. Now, the key here, Trinitarian. Right, so throughout scriptures, uh, when especially writers like Paul the Apostle talks about salvation in Christ, he always talks about in terms of the cooperative work of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. You can't have the first two without the third, and that's sort of the point I'm trying to make: is that. You know, the Holy Spirit has, of course, not been neglected in our doctrines. Uh, you know, we pay lip service to the Holy Spirit. But what I'm talking about is the practical experience dimension, but also just in terms of theology. And I know when I started talking about salvation in Christ, a lot of people mentioned to me that, um, that this is kind of new to them, that they haven't heard the Spirit's role in salvation um, and so it's exciting for me. I like, I like this because we're, we're, we're really going deep in the foundational stuff. So I realize a lot of this you guys probably already know. Um, but just building the foundation, going deep in some of these things. Because I, I, to be honest, I'm not sure, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I've ever heard an entire sermon on conversion. You know, you hear people talk about conversion, but I'm, I'm referring to the actual theology and putting together the different scriptures and, and how conversion works. And so it's kind of fun for me to be able to go deep in these different things that we often talk about but don't really go deep into, um, in my experience. And again, I could be wrong. But what I want to say is, um, this, whenever the scriptures speak of salvation, this is really neat. Paul the Apostles, he speaks of it in terms of God the Father always initiating it. Always initiating it. It's, it's an interesting thing. So God sent forth his Son. Um, it's all predicated on the love of God. The love of God is the predicate of our entire existence, but especially salvation. So often when Paul talks about salvation, it's in the context of the love of God. And he talks about how he sent his son to redeem us from the, for instance, in Galatians 4, 4 to 6, to redeem us from the curse of the law so that we become children. Then he says, then God sent forth the spirit of his son in our hearts, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. So you see that God the Father initiates. Christ has affected salvation historically. So he's the one who's who's accomplished it historically. Okay, At one time in history, Jesus came and, and, and set the record straight. And, he, and because of that, his death and resurrection, uh, he accomplished salvation for us. The Spirit is the one who affects it experientially in the individual life and in the church. So for instance, the scripture I just gave in Galatians 4... The Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. That's the evidence that we're children. That's the evidence that we're heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And so you see that experiential dimension and component uh, through the Spirit. Now, my point in saying that is salvation in Christ is not simply a theological truth, okay, based on God's prior action in the historical work of Christ. We're not binitarian, we're trinitarian, and salvation is an experienced reality, okay? Made so by the person of the Spirit coming into our lives. So the Spirit is the key to understanding Christian conversion. And, and I want to make sure I say this uh, because I said a couple weeks ago, Trisha mentioned it last week, I, I don't want to in any way imply that the experience has to look a certain way, okay? I don't want there to be misunderstandings that I'm saying it has to look like this or else you're not saved, Okay, because it's a subjective experience, and it's not always going to be the same for everybody. It's going to look differently. It could be a piece. It could be goosebumps. It could be something dramatic. Okay, so I really want to make that clear that I'm not saying it necessarily has to look, you know, like something in particular. But, but the, the fact of the matter is it's really clear scripturally, if you just read the book of Acts, that they used the evidence that they, that they were saved by the Holy Spirit coming and then something happening. Often it was tongues, but not always. Sometimes it looked differently. Okay, like the Ethiopian eunuch. I don't remember him speaking in tongues when he was saved. But the fact of the matter is, something happened. Often there's prophetic uh, declarations going on, and that's and so there's it can look so differently. So that's my point, though, is that there is this experience dimension of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And in fact, the early church uh, uh, considered Christian conversion as fundamentally the role of the Holy Spirit. And you'll see last week we talked about this, and I'm going to continue on in this week to show you how crucial the Holy Spirit is in Christian conversion. Okay, so today's message, I'm talking about the Spirit's role in producing faith, saving faith. It's the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Uh, the Spirit's role in revealing the gospel, which leads to faith. Okay? And the Spirit's role in identifying the people of God, both individually and corporately. So we're going to just touch on that, but of course I'm going to develop that more in the future because that's such an important one. So talking about the spirit and conversion. Now, last week I mentioned there's several components or elements that make up one's experience of salvation, and these are just some of them. Hearing the gospel, of course, super important. Like that's a, it's a crucial part. You see that in Romans 10, 14, and 15. Faith, <laughs> That's really important, right? And then I have that highlight because we're, we're talking about that today. Uh, the actual event of conversion, and we talked a few weeks ago about the met- different metaphors of salvation, like redemption, justification, propitiation. We'll talk about more of that in the future as well, but there's a different images that the Bible uses to try and express what happens at the moment of conversion. The gift of the Holy Spirit, and then baptism in water. Now, all of these, the Spirit plays a central role in every step of the process, except for baptism. Okay? And why is that? Because baptism is the human response to God's prior action. That's our response to God's saving action. Okay? So, So, we are responding, showing that we're saved, that we've come under the submission of Christ by doing that. Okay? So... First, I want to focus on the Spirit and faith. The Spirit and faith. Now, like I said, conversion, and we talked about this last week, conversion is the the work of the Spirit beginning with the proclamation, the preaching of the Word, and the revelation of the Gospel. The proclamation and the response. Now, Christian life begins at the hearing of the Gospel, which both precedes faith, And and I have a reference there, Romans 10, 14, and is accompanied by faith. And I have some scriptural references up there. But if you're interested, check out last week's message because we go in detail in that uh, last week. So last week we talked about this, how the act of preaching and responding are both the work of the Spirit. And I have this diagram up there for you visual people. You see preaching, and then, of course, that precedes hearing. And hearing precedes believing and confession, which is the response which leads to salvation. So today I have belief highlighted because that we kind of pay, we uh, paid a few seconds last week on that, um, but today going in a little more detail on belief because of course belief is a crucial part of salvation, right? If you believe with your heart that Jesus raised from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Romans ten fourteen and fifteen, and so of course the belief aspect of it is a really crucial part of salvation. So this is an interesting thing, talking about the Spirit's role in belief. Our believing or trusting, if you remember, I talked about how the word faith really encompasses these different dimensions. We use the word belief, which is definitely a part of that. But the reason it's not a full picture is because the original word has the implication of trusting as well. So it's not just mental assent, like I believe that. Theoretically, it's believing and trusting in Christ. Okay, so both of those are really an important part of faith. So our believing or trusting is the hinge point between our calling on God, Jesus is Lord, and the hearing of the gospel. Okay, so that happens. Hearing, calling, then you have this belief in between, okay? The interesting thing is our trusting or our faith is in some mysterious way the working of the Holy Spirit is both the cause and effect. (laughs) Some divine mystery here. In other words, the Spirit appears as the one who initiates our faith, and as the one who's received by that same faith. It's kind of funny. He initiates it, and then be, when we have that faith, that we receive the Holy Spirit through that faith that he initiated. And I'll show you this right now. So on one hand, the Bible states that the gift of the Spirit comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And I just have one reference there, but there's a whole bunch. Uh, Galatians three two to five, for instance. So, in other words, faith itself precedes the reception of the Spirit. And here's just one example Galatians 3, verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or what? By believing what you heard? Faith. And and we talked about this last week how it's interesting that Paul the Apostle, this is his way of asking, Were you saved? Did you receive the Spirit? In our contemporary times, we'd probably ask, were you saved by works of the law or believing what you heard? But you don't see that in the Bible. It's interesting. They don't. The way they ask is, did you receive the Spirit? It's the same in Acts 19 as well, verses 1 through 7. But anyway, the point is, you can see there that, that faith precedes the reception of the Spirit. But on the other hand, faith is considered one of the evidences of the work of the Spirit. So I just have a couple of references up here, like 1 Corinthians 12, 9, 13, 2, Galatians 2, 5, 22, now, the first two, granted, is a, is a is a gift of faith. So that's not necessarily referring to salvation, the, the saving faith. That's a miraculous work of the Spirit. Uh, okay, so, so, but there's other references, like, for instance, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's the word pistis, and that's the same word used for faith. Uh, in fact, in Galatians 5.6, he says this, These the only things that count is faith expressing itself through love, and that word faith is the same word pistis. Now here, it's referring to the saving faith in its continuing expression, which is why the translators translate a faithfulness, ongoing faith. Okay, but even if you look at the King James, even it just has the singular faith because that's really what the word is. But the point is. Um, the Spirit is producing that faith. You see that? It's the fruit of the Spirit of faith. Okay? Um, here's another scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, 13-14. It is written, I believed, therefore I've spoken. You see those two things, the responses, belief, de- declaration. Since we have that same Spirit-given faith, you see that? The Spirit gives that faith. We also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to, with you to himself. And if you remember last week, look at this, the belief and the confession, the responses of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12.3 And no one can say Jesus is Lord, the confession part of it, except by the Spirit. So not only is he responsible for the believing faith that saves us, he's also responsible for the declaration Jesus is Lord. So the key point here is that faith itself is a work of the Spirit leads us to receive and experience the Spirit who also comes through that same faith. Like I said, he's both the cause and the effect of faith. You can see how crucial he is with salvation, Right? Here's another reference, Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. And again, that context right after in Galatians 5.22, that he produces that faith in us, in the fruit of the Spirit of faithfulness. So the Spirit is the means whereby our faith is sustained as well. If you remember, I talked about how we often talk about Christian conversion in regards to the beginning point Of salvation, but conversion is actually a lifelong, ongoing process of discipleship, ongoing faithfulness. It's faith and faithfulness. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that those who endure to the end will be saved. So it's conversion is a lifelong process. Okay, but we're talking about the beginning point, and that is clearly an important part of it as well. So faith itself is a prior work of the Spirit in the life of the one who becomes a believer. I already gave you the reference, 2 Corinthians 4.14. This faith comes through, now this is important, this faith comes through revelation of the gospel by the Spirit. Okay, and I'll show you this diagram here so you see what I mean. You see preaching, then there's hearing, then there's a revelation. You need the revelation of the truth of the gospel, which also comes by the Spirit. We're going to be talking about that today. That results in believing, that results in faith, then confession and salvation. So we're talking about the revelation that the Spirit gives of the gospel is so important. You remember even in John 16 when Jesus talks about, it's better that I go, because if I don't go, then I won't send the advocate, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I'll send him to you, and he will lead you into all truth. But not only that, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, he's the one who convicts us. He's the one who gives us that revelation that we need a Savior. Okay, but in addition to that, I want to focus on this one, actually two scriptures showing this. Okay, so you might remember we talked about how Paul often refers to his ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the new covenant is empowered by the Spirit and it results in others receiving the Spirit. So the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 3, he talks about this. But here's just one verse that you can see. This is verse 6. He says, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And then he goes on to define the new covenant. He says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Isn't that interesting that he defines the new covenant as the covenant of the Spirit? Then he says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And right, we talked about how this is an allusion to various Old Testament promises of the new covenant. Like Ezekiel 36, for instance, that God says, I'll put my spirit into you. And inspire you to follow my laws and decrees, because now it's the Holy Spirit. It's, the, it's why we're called to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, because the new covenant is all about life in the Spirit. But Paul's, now this is what I want to talk about today. Paul's own insight into the gospel came by the Spirit's revelation. Okay, so, so his insight into the message of the gospel actually was given to him by the Spirit. And I have a couple of references up there, but I'm going to go in both those in detail so you see what I mean. But the essential content of the gospel came to him by revelation, again, by the Spirit. The Spirit actually gave him the revelation of the content of the gospel message, which, of course, we read now in the Bible. And this revelation involved both an unveiling of, quote-unquote, God's mystery by the Spirit, In both of these verses, he refers to God's mystery and the Holy Spirit revealing that mystery to him. So the first one I want to talk about, this scripture has so, <laughs> is so important for so many different reasons. I love this scripture, and I'm glad I've alluded to it a whole bunch of times, but I'm glad I'm going to be talking about it in this one way. There's a bunch of different things you can get out of this particular passage, but because of of course in context what we're talking about, that's what I'm going to be emphasizing. And that's the Spirit revealing the gospel in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. Now, before I talk about that, just to give some context, the Corinthians considered themselves spirit people. They considered them. In fact, if you guys remember, the third message I gave in this series was talking about the language of the spirit in the New Testament, right? It's the word spiritual, which is the word pneumatikos in the original Greek, and that occurs 26 times in the New Testament. 24 of the 26 times, Paul is the one who uses it. He basically coined that term. And it's essentially an adjective that means something pertaining to the spirit, whether it's a person or whatever, gifts of the spirit, pneumatikos, okay? Now, the interesting thing is 15 out of 24 of the times it occurs in this one book, First Corinthians, because <laughs> that's what they cared a lot about. We were, we're spirit people, Paul. Didn't you know? I'm not sure about you, but we're spirit people, that's that's their attitude, and Paul has to kind of readjust their perspective of what that means because they they're missing it by a million miles, and the whole book is basically correcting them. What I mean, they probably it seems to indicate that an over-realized eschatology meaning. You know, we talked about the already not yet. They thought that everything was now. And their gift that they really liked was tongues. And so that's why, you, if, you, if you understand, that's probably where they're coming from. It makes a whole lot of sense of the whole book, and maybe we'll get into that someday. But the point is, they were into a, this is a strong term, but a false spirituality. And what I mean by that is that it sidestepped discipleship marked by the cross. They were abandoning the cross for human wisdom. So Paul addresses this error throughout the whole letter. And so before I go into chapter 2, I just want to give a few verses from chapter 1 so you can see this. Because this really actually builds the context for what I want to show you. So this is, I realize there's a lot of text. You can just listen if you want. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse starting in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest, look at this, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For, look at this, the message of the cross is foolishness. I have that highlighted because it's important. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Okay, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I'll frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, I have, I'm going to go on, but just, just notice how he's, what he's doing here. He's saying the message of the gospel is foolish according to the wisdom of this age. Okay, and that becomes important. So he goes on. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through, look, the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a crucified Messiah. The ultimate oxymoron. That's the problem they had. A crucified Messiah. Okay? A contradiction in terms. Because they were looking for a Messiah to come, overthrow Satan, overthrow their hated enemy, Rome, bash them heads in, come in military power, but instead... God chose to crucify him, okay? And he's saying that does not make any sense to anybody, to the wisdom of this world. And you need the Spirit's revelation to penetrate that mystery because the, the, according to the wisdom of this world, they're going to reject that because it's so foolish to them. That's why he's using this terminology over and over again, foolishness. Okay, so he goes on. This is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The point is, and I kind of mentioned this, is the gospel stands in ultimate contradiction to human wisdom. Okay? Okay? And, and this is the thing that the Corinthians were really into, is human wisdom. They were Greeks. Come on, of course. Right in that time where philosophy was super hip, and they're trying to be cool with the world, and they're trying to right, be really spiritual. And Paul's like, do you know what real spirituality is? It's a crucified Messiah. Totally contrary to human wisdom. Okay? Completely. And unless you have the Spirit's revelation, you're not going to come to terms with that. Okay, So God saved the fallen human race through a crucified Messiah. With, now, without the Spirit, humans wouldn't stand a chance to penetrate this hidden mystery. And that's what he says. So I'm going to go on now. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Okay, and I gave you that context because this scripture is often taken out of context and, and is used in a way that's actually t- completely opposite to what Paul intended, <laughs> which is ironic. But look at what he says. Verse 6. We do, however, look at this, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, look at this, a mystery, notice that word, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time again. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, look at this, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory because that's the mystery, a crucified Messiah. They had no clue. They had no clue. They were actually acting in accordance to God's will that he would save the world through a crucified Messiah. They thought they're getting rid of this guy. And, and it's like, suckers, <laughs> nuh-uh. You are actually acting according to God's will, and now, now this world's going to be saved because of it. Okay? And that's what he's saying. If the devil knew this, they would have done everything they could to make sure Jesus did not die. But it's a mystery that is only revealed by the spirit because human wisdom considers it foolishness. Okay, so this passage now, what I want to say is not referring to some obscure secret wisdom but to the content of the gospel, which is what he means by God's mystery. And that's what I was talking about earlier. A lot of people take this and say, oh, the wisdom to the mature. And they take it to say, oh, we're the spiritual ones. We have this revelation that other people don't have. And so we're the mature. One. No way. He's talking about the, God, the crucified Messiah. That's the hidden mystery he's referring to. Okay, so this mystery can only be understood through revelation. I'm going to assure you that right now. Look at what he says right after. However, as it's written, what no eyes seen, what no ears heard, and what no human mind is conceived, talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why earlier in chapter one, that's what he says. I came to you in weakness and tears and trembling. Because they were making fun of Paul. They're like, this guy can't even preach. He comes to, his letters are so weighty, but then he comes to us and he's like nothing. His preaching's not eloquent, like these other guys. Paul's saying, exactly. Because you know why? The gospel is weakness. A suffering servant Messiah is what the gospel is. And you know what? You want to be part of this? You got to lose your life to save it. Okay? You got to actually be the servant of all to be the greatest in the kingdom. You have to become like a child. Totally contrary to human wisdom, isn't it? Right? Because what's the world's idea of success? Power. Dominion, right? Bashing heads in. Uh, uh-uh, uh. That's not how Jesus came. He came as a humble, suffering servant who was crucified, and even the disciples could not penetrate this mystery until he was raised from the dead, while they were walking with him. But look at this: for the things God has prepared for those who love Him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by the Spirit. Talking about the message of the gospel in context, talking about a crucified Messiah. That's what this verse is referring to. And that was hidden until the Spirit came and revealed to us that that's the truth, the way of the cross. So, only by the Spirit, the point is, only by the Spirit, Paul and his converts understood what the human mind couldn't conceive. That God in his own wisdom (laughs) chose to redeem our fallen race through a crucified Messiah. You have to understand, crucifixion was a swear word in those days. You actually can read that in Roman literature. They considered it a swear word. Why? It was the most horrific death anyone on the planet could be subject to. In fact, the only people who were crucified in those days were insurrectionists and runaway slaves. They wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens because it was the most horrific death you could imagine. But yet, the King of kings and the Lord of lords suffered that kind of death? That's why he says that's a stumbling block. And it's foolishness. Because unless the Spirit reveals to you that's the way that the Lord chose to redeem us, you are not going to get it. You're not going to get it from reasoning. You're not going to get it from logical explanation. It's got to come by revelation of the Spirit. And believing this requires this revelation by the Spirit, okay? Because human wisdom can never come to terms with this. Oxymoron, contradiction of terms, a crucified Messiah. Messiah meant power, glory, honor, overcome the enemy in their minds. That's why so many people, including John the Baptist, missed it. I mean, you see this in Matthew 11 when he sends his disciples and says, Are you him or should we expect someone else? Because you sure don't look like the Messiah we are waiting for. I'm in prison. And you say that you're going to set the prisoners free, Jesus. (laughs) You haven't even visited me in prison yet. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. I'm fulfilling all these promises. And then he says, go tell John this, the blind see, the dead. Why? He's quoting Isaiah and showing, hey, Isaiah 61, like he quotes in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to set the captives free. He's saying, actually, John, I'm fulfilling this stuff. It's just in a way you totally don't get. I'm doing it through humility, not through bashing uh, Romans' heads in, like you think. Suffering servant. Okay. So, he goes on, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? The same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, and maybe someday I'll talk about the interesting dynamics with the Trinity here, but that's another story for another day. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Look at this, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about grace through Christ. This is what we speak. He's talking about his preaching now. He's talking about the content of his message. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but look at this. But in words taught by the Spirit. This revelation came to him by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. So Paul's preaching of the cross came with words taught by the Spirit. This included explaining these spiritual realities through Spirit-taught words. Okay, so the Spirit taught him. Only people with the Spirit, believers can understand and accept the message of the cross, is his whole point here. So he goes on to say that. Look at this, verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only by the Spirit. He's talking about salvation. And notice how he distinguishes people who are saved versus people who are not. Those without the Spirit can't get this. Those with the Spirit get this. That's how important the Spirit is with salvation. That what distinguishes those who can come to the saving faith is whether or not they have the Spirit who's revealed this to them. Otherwise, they'll call it foolishness. And then verse 15 says, But the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who's known the mind of the Lord to instruct them? But we have the mind of Christ. Remember, he talks earlier about how this only the Spirit knows the mind of God. Here he's saying that because we have the Spirit, we know the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And he gives us this understanding of the revelation of the cross, which enables us to believe and to confess. So in this passage, this entire passage I just read, the Spirit is understood to have revealed what was formerly hidden and is still hidden to those without the Spirit, unbelievers. So the key point is believing faith requires revelation by the Spirit. And now I want to go back and just show you this verse. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 1.18. I read this earlier, but look at this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, the unbelievers. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. What's the point? Look at what he's saying here. Those who are perishing are those without the spirit. In, in chapter 2, verse 14, that's what he says. Those without the spirit are considered this foolishness. They can't believe. They're the ones who are perishing. Those who are being saved is the person with the spirit. Chapter 2, 15. Okay, so that's how he's distinguishing whether they're saved or not. Whether or not you have the spirit. Because the spirit is a crucial role in, in believing, which is a crucial part of salvation. Okay, so the natural person is the one who doesn't have the Spirit and therefore is incapable of understanding what God has done through the cross is the point, whereas the opposite is true of the believer. And again, it's the Spirit that distinguishes the two, believer from unbeliever. What's the point? The key point is the Spirit is the one who reveals this mystery of the gospel to us so that we can believe, talking about faith, and receive salvation. He precedes salvation. Remember I said that he's the one who reveals the gospel content, the message, so that we can believe. And he produces the faith, too, that we can believe. So people cannot be saved without the Spirit's revelation and considers the cross and the gospel foolishness. The Spirit, therefore, plays a crucial role in our salvation. And I mentioned this earlier. If you remember the progression that's stated at different times, like in 2 Corinthians 4, that verse I read, we believe, therefore we confess... In Romans 10, 14, 15, same thing. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, or verse 9 rather, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And look at 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. No one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can make that basic Christian confession except by the Holy Spirit. You see that? So he is a crucial part of salvation in every part of the process. And, and I have this verse here. I always put it up because it's a succinct, what I'm trying to say, or you'll see it's hard to uh, uh, argue with this because it's so clearly stated in Romans 8, 9. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ right so whether you so in other words you if you don't have the spirit you're not a christian is what he's saying and that's what we've been talking about the christian is the christian the one identity marker of whether you're saved or not is whether you have the spirit and this is what paul uses in his whole argument in galatians which we'll talk about someday okay do you have the spirit why because the new covenant we're no longer under law that's why yes did you receive the spirit that's his way of asking if you're saved by what the works of the Lord by believing what you've heard? Of course, the answer is by believing what you've heard. Then he says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to complete by means of the flesh? In other words, how we finish is how we started, which is by the Spirit. And that's why in context, if you fast forward to chapter 5, he says, goes back to the Spirit and gives all these imperatives. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the lust of the flesh. In verse 16. Those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under law. Verse 18. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Right? He goes, why? The Spirit the new covenant of the Spirit, the Spirit produces God's character in us. He produces God's righteousness in us. He produces all of these things that make us righteous by grace so that we're no longer under law if you're led by the Spirit. He goes on to say, if now that you walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. So we have a part to play. We're supposed to learn the Spirit walk in the new covenant. But the point that I was making is that that's what distinguishes whether you're saved or not. The identity marker, right. Because what the issue in Galatians was is they were trying to put Jewish identity markers on Christians. What do I mean by that? There were certain things that distinguished whether you were Jewish or not at that time in the diaspora. Food regulations, holidays, and circumcision. This is what kept Jews... Uh, um, part of the identity because the temple was destroyed. And how do you know if you're Jewish or not? These things. This is what made them Jews in those days, the identity markers. And what Paul's saying is, no, no. What identifies you now is whether you have the Spirit or not, okay, in the New Covenant. That's the only thing that identifies whether you're saved. And that's why Paul asked, did you receive the Spirit? Because that's, w- And in Acts 19, you remember, he, he comes across these guys, and he's like, what baptism did you, did you receive the spirit, he asked them, when you believed? And they're all like, what, what, what spirit are you talking about? Paul's like, oh, you guys, okay, there's, there, I knew there was something wrong. He's like, okay, well, what baptism did you receive? They're like, John's. He's like, oh, guys, okay. <laughs> John said to believe in the guy after, which is Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay, so then they get baptized, and then they receive the spirit. Right, Because then he he knew that there was something wrong with their discipleship because they didn't have the Spirit. And then he realized, oh, it was because they didn't even know they had to be saved through Jesus. They were John the Baptist disciples. But that was the question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Because that was the evidence. You just read the book of Acts and you see that over and over again. Now, that's the point I'm making. But I want to say this. So it identi- the Spirit's what identifies whether you're s- saved or not individually. And I just re- read you Romans 8 and 9. But also, it identifies us as the people of God, the Spirit. And if you remember when I talked about uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's what distinguishes us as the church now. He says, don't you know in, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you plural, as a gathered community? In other words, as, as believers now, as a gather, not the building, a gathered community, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's the presence of God, the Spirit, that distinguishes us from every other people group of the earth. The presence of God. But I just want to show you that, and then we're going to finish. Because talking about the mystery of the gospel that's revealed by the Spirit to Paul the Apostle. And what I want to show you, remember number three here. That the, that, that the Holy Spirit is the key to what it means for us to become the people of God. Remember I've been saying this, but I've only given that one sermon of the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you'll see... Starting now, just briefly, why that's the case. So he says, now look at this. In a former time, Paul divided the world of us and versus them in terms of Jews and Gentiles. You guys know that. That's, that's how the world was divided. We're the people of God, we're the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, are the people who aren't part of the, of the uh, uh, children of God. But the new division between those who, is between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And we know that, right? And what characterizes those who belong to Christ is that they have the Spirit. Okay? Well, others do not. Even, even just think of the word Christian. What does the word Christ mean? It means little anointed ones. Anointed with what? Anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the ultimate man of the Spirit. Anyway, I've talked about that in the past, so I want to, but what's, what the point is here is that that's what distinguishes us as the people of God as well. And I'm going to show you some verses here because you'll see that those who belong to Christ have come to life, the life-giving spirit. Now, I, t- I mentioned Galatians 5.25, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 3 and 6. They walk by the Spirit, and they're led by the Spirit. In fact, Romans 8.14, it says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's what he's saying. You're a child of God if you're led by the Spirit, because that's, that's the one thing that makes you a child of God. And then that's in the context where he says, the Spirit who brought about your adoption to sonship, who cries out, Abba, Father. So, those, so you're God's child if you have the Spirit, is what he's saying. For the early church, therefore, to get saved means to receive the Spirit. And I already talked about this. But what I want to show you is this also the Spirit that makes us part of the body of Christ. Corporately. Not just individually. That's an individual thing. The Spirit goes into your heart, of course. But what, what makes us part of the body is the Spirit. Now here's one verse. I'm going to show you a few of these. It's an interesting thing. For we are all baptized in one Spirit. Look at this. So as to form one body right? That's what he's saying in the spirit. That's what makes us one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, I have the highlighter for you'll see why, slave or free, and we were all, talking about all believers, given the one spirit to drink. He's talking about the body of Christ now, right? So that's the one thing that you guys have all received the spirit corporately. We're all baptized in that one spirit. That's how it forms the body of Christ, now, earlier we talked about how Paul's own insight into the gospel came by the Spirit's revelation. You remember that, 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, rather, chapter 2. God's mystery, but this is interesting. In Ephesians 3, 2 to 13, this mystery of the God he talks about includes the fact that Gentiles are heirs with Israel's one body. I'm going to read you this because it's interesting. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the mystery that the Holy Spirit had to reveal to Paul. So, for Paul, the revelation of the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles together in Christ and their actual inclusion are the work of the Spirit. That's what makes us Christians, the body of Christ. So look at this. Roman, or sorry, Ephesians 3. Starting in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Look at this. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Remember, the Spirit's revelation. You'll see that. As I've already written briefly in re- reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. You see that? It's the Spirit who revealed this to Paul and others. To God's holy apostles and prophets, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promised in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel. This is part of the gospel message. It's good news for us because most of us are Gentiles. By the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power— So what required revelation is that the Gentiles would be included (laughs) law-free and on equal standing with Jews. Because to be sure, the Jews were expecting Gentiles to be part of it in the eschaton, in the end times. But they were thinking nations, and they definitely weren't thinking it would be law-free and that they'd be equal standing with them. That required a revelation. And Paul said, "That's, that's true, guys. The Spirit revealed this to us. So that now God and Christ has formed one new humanity the two peoples. You see, and I'm going to just read this, Ephesians 2, 14, 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Right? That's part of the revelation. He set aside the law. His purpose was to create it in himself one new humanity, both Jew and Gentile, out of the two, thus making peace. Okay? So such an understanding could have only come from the Spirit's revelation. That was a huge stumbling block. You know, and you even see this in the Gospels, even in Acts, where it's like Paul, Paul's saying that we have to disregard the law of Moses, and they wanted to pers- like kill him because of that. Right? You're, you're saying you not have to, we're no longer applicable to these laws? And they're like, that's heresy. And Paul's like, that requires a revelation (laughs) by the Spirit. Okay? I understand your anger because I was too. And I killed Christians because of it until the Spirit set me straight. And I had this encounter with the living Christ. Okay? So I understand, Paul, hypothetically, where you're coming from. That's a huge stumbling block to the Jews. But it's true. And I don't expect you to get it unless the Spirit reveals it. Because that's how it came to me. I, I get it. So both through, okay, so the the Spirit's revelation, both through Jews and Gentiles' common experience of the Spirit, I read that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and through an understanding of what Christ and the Spirit had done. Here's a couple more verses, okay, and we'll wrap up. Ephesians 2, 18, 20, look at this, and 21 and 22. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Remember what I'm saying. It's the Spirit that makes us the body of Christ. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Then he says, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Right? And so it's the Spirit that distinguishes us as the body of Christ. The Spirit dwelling in our midst. Ephesians 4, and this makes a whole lot of sense of a lot of scriptures, like Ephesians 4 now one through six. He says, actually, I'm starting verse three. Make every effort to what? Keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He's talking Jews and Gentiles. Look at this. There is one body and one spirit, right? That's what he's saying. You guys have the same spirit. That's what makes you one body together. So keep the unity of the spirit. Don't create these divisions. And you see this in the book of Galatians and Romans. His whole thing is Jews and Gentiles together as one body in the Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father in all, who's over all and through all and in all. The point is you're one body, guys, Jews and Gentiles. The barrier's gone now in Christ by the Spirit. And, and again, just to reiterate, for we were, in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. for we were all baptized in one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews and Gentiles, slave or free, for we're all given one Spirit to drink. So what should we do in light of all this? That's a good question. First of all, I want to sum up. Remember what we talked about today. I'm talking about salvation, talking about the Spirit's role in conversion. We showed that the Spirit's role produces saving faith. And that faith also is cause and effect, uh, enables you to receive the Spirit. Then I talked about the Spirit's role in revealing the gospel, which leads to faith. Okay? Otherwise, we'd consider it foolishness. It's all by the Spirit. And then the Spirit's role in identifying the people of God both individually and corporately. So in some, both the understanding of the gospel and the event of preaching, including the hearing that leads to faith, are the work of the Spirit. That's why I showed you that, <laughs> talked about how in the first century the, the, the Holy Spirit was the crucial role, played the key role the key crucial part in conversion. That's how they understood it. And you see that now, how every part of, of conversion is the work of the Spirit. Of course, faith in Christ, right? But my point is, in the actual conversion process, the Spirit plays a crucial role. And that's why understanding the role of the Spirit in salvation is so important. So what should we do in light of this? The Spirit plays an essential role in every aspect of conversion and ongoing Christian life. We're going to be talking about that too. Christian ethics, everything is by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Him producing God's righteousness. In fact, in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with food or drink, people. You know what it has to do with? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces that righteousness. The Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces those fruits of the peace and joy, right? So the kingdom is all about him producing God's character in us. And, and I'm just trying to stop myself because someday I'll talk all about that. Knowing this should affect our prayer lives, right? The implications of this. When praying for loved ones as well as ourselves, and when sharing the gospel. I talked a little bit about it last week, right? So we need to pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 18, and for the Spirit, as the early church did, and the apostles instructed us to. Now, you guys know what a big fan I am of the apostolic prayers. So I'm going to advertise them again. And you know this, Sam. You guys wouldn't know this. When I was a professor at Tyndall, every lecture, I started off by praying one of the apostolic prayers, essentially, right? That's how I love these. We're praying the scriptures, but why not? This is how Paul the apostle, prayed. this is inspired prayer. But what's interesting is how he starts almost every one, especially the major apostolic prayers. Look at this. Ephesians 1.17, now all the way to 23, I'm just giving you the first couple verses so you see this, talking about the revelation by the Spirit. Look at what he prays. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you what? The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. He actually calls him the Spirit of revelation because it's the Spirit who reveals the things of God. He says, so that you may know him better. Then he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He's talking by the Spirit, right? The Spirit of revelation that he just prayed for in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in God's people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Colossians 1, 9 through 14, but here's just the first verse, talking about God's will. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. It's the word Spiritual. Pneumatikos, an adjective of that pertaining to the Spirit. That's why it's that the Spirit gives. Why not pray this for our loved ones? We're talking about salvation, but we're talking about ourselves too. We want to live in the God's will, don't we? And it, the God's will is revealed by the wisdom and understanding, the revelation that the Spirit gives you. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And, and why not pray these things? Pray this for us if you want. How do we how can I pray for you? Apostolic prayers. <laughs> That's what I tell people. Apostle, right? And, and like I said, there's, it's 9 through 14. I just have verse 9 there, but all the way through. Ephesians 3, 16, 21. Look how he starts. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with what? Power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Produced by the power of the spirit. Right? And so my point in saying is, what should we do in light of all this? Talking about conversion, we want to pray effectively for our loved ones, and I've been talking about how important the Spirit plays in conversion, in salvation, in revelation, in faith. Why not take these prayers and pray them for our loved ones? Guarantee you they're effective. Why not pray these for ourselves, for our city, for our people and government? The Spirit would give them the revelation of the cross, which many of them think is foolishness now, don't they? Because the Spirit needs to reveal those to them. It's all by the Spirit. Amen? So I'm just going to pray for us. Father, we just thank you so much for your spirit, God. And I just thank you so much that through Christ, that he paid the ultimate, ultimate price through his death and resurrection. So that we may receive the gift of the spirit, that we may live this life through the spirit, just like Jesus did. How you say in Acts 10.38 that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Lord, we just thank you that because of what Jesus did, you gave us that same spirit, your very presence, resident in us, resident in our lives, so that we can show people your goodness, show people what the kingdom of God is like, show people what heaven is like. Lord, I just ask that... uh, even now, as we pray for our loved ones, as we have them in our minds, that you would pour out your spirit of wisdom and revelation upon them so that they would know you. That they would come to the revelation of how amazing a price that you paid on the cross, that we can have free redemption and salvation through your blood. That we can live eternity in your presence. Lord, help us to be effective in in our message of of the gospel by your spirit, and help us just to demonstrate your love, which is all predicated onto the world, by your spirit. Help us to have the unity of the spirit. Help us to be the body of Christ, and give us the revelation of what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit as a gathered community. And Lord, I just ask that the Church of Ottawa, that we'd be known as a people of your presence, a temple of the Holy Spirit, that people would see Your presence so powerfully in our midst that the world would look and wonder and want what we have. We thank you so much, Lord, for your peace that surpasses understanding and the joy of the Lord, which is our strength through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we like to offer, if you guys like, we have a prayer uh, team. If you'd like prayer for anything, feel free to come up uh, and we'll have prayer people.